0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Revelation chapter 1 this morning. Revelation chapter 1, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation in what I'm calling the Things to Come series. And uh, last week we considered verses 1 through 3. This week we were going to look at verses 4 through 8 in a message I'm calling a sneak preview to, of things to come. Stand with me when you're there in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, in these short four verses, what powerful words we find. We ask you, Lord, to as we come just humbly before you that you would speak to us, Lord, each of us individually today. You'd give us understanding of your word uh, by your Holy Spirit that you would lead us into all truth. We ask, Lord, for every word that is spoken from this pulpit would be from you today. We thank you in advance, Lord, for what you're going to do in our lives. We open our hearts to you. We invite you to come do work in us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you have ever uh, been invited to like a a sneak preview of a film or a play or something like that? You ever been invited to something like that? Anybody ever been invited to like a a soft opening of a restaurant or some sort of event center or something like that? Yeah, it, it, it happens kind of regularly. But here's the reality. You can't just go to something like that. As much as I would love to just walk into a preview of a new film or a play or maybe a new artist's CD that's coming out, I would love to just go and sit and listen because I'm a fan. But the reality is I can't just do that, can I? You have to be invited in order to go to something like that. It's for invitation only. It's for those who were invited to go to such a thing as that. So, you know, and the purpose of that is that you would gain some experience, right, from the event or whatever it might be, the movie or whatever it is, that you would then take into your respective world and share with other people, right? That's the point. The point is not just for your enjoyment. Like the preview is for you to share with other people, but only you can go. That's the interesting thing about the book of Revelation. It's kind of the same idea. God has invited you and I to a preview of things to come. He's revealing to us not just events that are going to happen, but he's revealing to us a person, his son, Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's a revelation for Jesus and about Jesus. And he's invited you and I to come into the secret place for us to understand what it is that is going to happen, how he is going to reveal the glory of God the Son. And it's amazing. It's something that we shouldn't take for granted, folks. So many people don't read the book of Revelation, and you've been invited to something that's incredible. You get to see Jesus in a different light. As I said last week, we talked about Jesus being presented in the Gospels, and he's presented as the Lamb of God, as the Son of Man. He's presented as the suffering servant. And also, John presents him as God the Son, Here's the thing is, though, it's his humility that is presented in the gospel. What God wants us to know about Jesus is that he's coming in glory, folks. He has always been, he always will be, he is preeminent, and when he comes, we're going to see him for who he really is. Remember, the Mount of Transfiguration when the the, the three disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John were up on that Mount of Transfiguration with him and they saw Jesus in his glory. And of course Peter's like, whoa, maybe we should build some tents. Here's Moses and Elijah. We should just hang out here. Forget those other guys, right? That's probably what you would have done as well. But they saw Jesus in his glory. It was a preview. It was a preview of a preview. And here God has taken the time to reveal the glory of his son, to Jesus first, and then Jesus through an angel, as we learned last week, invites you and I personally, his servants only, not the rest of the world, his servants only, to see the revealing of his son, Jesus Christ. How amazing is that, folks? We have before us a book that is a book of blessings, As I told you last week as well, you know, when I first read the book of Revelation, uh, I was just reading through through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. By the time I got to the end of it, I thought, wow, how mean is God? God is so mean. And as I've continued to do that over and over and over again, I come to the realization every time I close a chapter in the Bible, I think, why are you so patient, God? Why are you so kind? Why are you so loving? I don't understand. The, the person, the, na- the nature of who you are, I, thi- I think I do, but I really don't, the more I realize how gracious he is. And when we come to the book of Revelation, many of us have an incorrect view of this book. And I have had an incorrect view, and I'm not saying that I have a perfect view of it now, but here's what I know. The book of Revelation is not about destruction. The book of Ravel- Revelation is about invitation. It's about God reaching into the world one last time, doing everything that he can other than force people to come to Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm here. I exist. Look to me. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to come out of your sin? Do you want to live with me eternally? You got to look to me. And it's God really, his last ditch effort, as I said last week, to really grab a hold of people. Yes, God's wrath will be poured out, but it's for the purpose of grace. Grace. It's so that people know that he's there. Don't misunderstand and think for a second that in seven years, that's wrath for sin. It is not. You know what wrath for sin is? It's called hell. That's wrath for sin. The book of Revelation is God just trying to open the eyes up of the world so that nobody can stand before him and say, hey, I didn't know. Oh, you knew. You knew you refused. You refuse. As we always say, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go there because God reveals himself to people. The book of Revelation is a book of revealing of Jesus Christ. And it is an amazing book. Today we're going to consider three specific things out of these four verses. We're going to consider uh, the people that were invited to the sneak preview in verse 4. We're going to consider the triune Godhead of the sneak preview in verses 4 through 6. And finally, the prophetic promise of the sneak preview in verses 7 through 8. First, let's consider the people invited. Look with me at verse 4. Here we find John, the writer of this book, uh, being translated from an angel who got it from Jesus, who got it from his father. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, you know that you've arrived in your culture when you just have to use your first name. He just says, John. It's like everybody knows if we're talking about Jesus, when, when John is mentioned, we know what John that is. John is a common name, but we understand who this John is. This is John the apostle. And everybody in his culture knew that. John had arrived when it came to, you know, any kind of spiritual conversation and the name John came up, people would automatically think of John the apostle. Not only because he was, you know, he was spared his life from Domitian who tried to boil him in, order, in oil, right? That, that's pretty epic. I think people might, might, you know, remember something like that. But also because he was an apostle. John was an apostle, here, what we find, I think, is interesting. Is you know, there's this this fourfold ministry that that we see God has given. Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven. He says God has given, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. What's kind of the same thing? Shepherd teachers, pastor teacher, whatever it is. That's kind of the same position. Some people believe they're different. I, I think they're the same. But whatever the case might be, here here's the reality: is that the 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 original 12 apostles sort of fit all of these categories. They were all of these things. They fit the offices of every one of these things. And then what we find John here, John is not only speaking with apostolic authority, that meant that he was sent from God to lay the foundation that was not laid yet. John, the apostles, the 12 original, Judas not being one of them, Probably Paul was supposed to fulfill that rap. But, you know, we like to mess around with God's stuff. So they cast lots and they made Matthias one of the apostles. Probably in heaven it's going to be Paul. And Matthias is going to be like, dude, sorry, you're, you're on, no, not really. But he'll be blessed. He'll be blessed. When he's in heaven, he'll be like, who cares? You know, was I supposed to get the title? I don't know. But, but the reality of it is that these 12 guys and these 12 guys alone were called to the apostolic ministry. They were sent by God to lay the foundation for the church. And they were given prophetic words, as John is here, the prophetic revelation of Jesus Christ. They were acting as prophets in that way, that they would bring the word of God that was being revealed to them through the spirit of God as they would write these letters. So you have apostolic authority, you have the prophets. They were also evangelists that went out and shared the gospel with people. They were pastor teachers. Paul would spend three years in Ephesus or 18 months or something like that just teaching people about Jesus. I think they love that ministry of teaching people about Jesus. There's nothing like watching the light bulb come on in a person's life when you start to tell them about Jesus. Oh, no, Jesus is like this. And you start to share the scriptures with them, and you start to see the connections being made, and the synapses are firing, and you're like, they're getting it. This is awesome. My point in telling you all of this is that John was acting... As somebody sent by God in apostolic authority to present a prophetic word that was given to him by the Lord, he was fulfilling what it is here that is found in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22 tells us the purpose of the apostolic and prophetic ministries. And here's what it says So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grow, uh, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for the spirit for the God, for God by the spirit Here's the reality is that these roles, the apostolic office, the prophetic office, they were roles that were meant to, as we see here, lay the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Here's what I think is that those offices came to a close. We don't really have apostles in the same sense as the words being presented here. People call themselves apostles, and I suppose that we could all call ourselves apostles if we're just simply defining it by what the word means it means sent one of course we're all sent ones jesus said go into all the world we're sent by him so we're all apostles in that sense but not in this sense not in the same sense as what's being spoken here prophecy also you know the point of prophecy was god revealing things to people about himself about himself, he's revealing things, things to come, it was really kind of the idea was when God would speak prophetically, it was to sort of authenticate the speaker so that people could know what they were hearing. When they were hearing something, they could know, can I trust that? Is that really from God or not? And then the Lord would, would say something and then it would come to pass, people would be like, whoa, I guess this guy is really a man of God, right? That was the point of it. You know, and, and are there prophecies today? I believe there are. I believe that the Lord reveals things that happen in the world. Is there prophetic words? Maybe they're just called words of, words of knowledge, maybe. You know, maybe it's a gift of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's, maybe it's that. But I don't think that that office is still in effect either. I think that office is closed. I think those two guys, those two offices laid the foundation for what we're called to do. What are we called to do? evangelize and make disciples. Evangelize and make disciples. That's sort of the last two things that we find in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Why do I bring this up? They're like, dude, why are you going on about this for 10 minutes? Because it's important. Because here's the reality is, the revelation has been given. We don't need the apostolic or the prophetic to continue to do our job, do we? We have it. Here's what our job is, though, is to Take what we've been told, take what we learned, take that what we've read, and we are called to then go out and tell other people about it, to sit and teach people about what it is that we know. That's our calling. John has stepped into his role here, and he's fulfilling it, and he's fulfilling it to a T, and he's fulfilling actually all of these ministries all at once. My point is that we need to take what we hear today, and we need to do what we're supposed to do with it, and that is to take it into the world and tell people about a a risen Savior that is coming in his glory. That's the point of what we're doing here. Just a reminder to you to share your faith. A reminder to you to, you know, the word that God gives you in the morning, maybe it's for somebody in the afternoon. And if we're not paying attention, we might miss that. John's paying attention. John's on the island of Patmos. John is in the spirit of the Lord, and he hears from God, and hears what he says. I'm supposed to write letters to seven specific churches in Asia, and Jesus defines for us who these churches are in verse 11 here. He tells us, he tells John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We find here the seven churches found in Asia Minor that John is writing to. These are seven literal churches. This is not symbolic. This, you know, There are some people who interpret what's being said here as these seven churches representing historically the church over, a pe- over you know, all the periods that will ever exist. This, this is the seven churches that, ex- that exemplify church history. I don't think that's what it's saying. What is the word seven? What, what does the number seven mean? It means perfection, probably more accurately. It means completion, or even more accurately, it means fullness. Fullness. I think why the reason why God is writing to these specific seven churches is because they capture the fullness of the church that exists at all times, in all places, and everywhere at once. Believe that what he's saying is that there's always seven types of churches in the world at all times. You know, and we find out as we read these letters, as we'll get into Revelation chapter two and three, we'll read about these specific churches and what they represent. But let me tell you, what they're they're represented by one in particular thing that Jesus needs to address with them. The church of Ephesus is called the loveless church. The church of Smyrna is called the persecuted church. The church of Pergamum is called the compromising church. The church of Thyatira is the corrupt church. The church of Sardis is the dead church. The church of Philadelphia is called the the, the faithful church. And finally, the church of Laodicea is called the what? The lukewarm church. So here's the reality. I believe what the Lord is saying is that these seven churches represent seven types of believers that exist. Seven types of people that are in the church today. Not necessarily even believers. Believers. There are people who believe they're believers but are not believers. They're maybe part of the dead church. People who are going through the motions that really don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but they think they do. Here's my question for you this morning, where do you fit into this? If that's the case, where do you fit into these seven churches? If this if it's the fullness of what he's talking about in terms of the church in general, where do you fit? john is writing to specific churches and and he has a message for specific churches and i think it's also a message for you and i we've been invited to the word of god to this word and we're blessed if we what read it aloud if we hear it and if we do what it says we're blessed and there's there's six other blessings in the book of revelation but here's the question for you this morning where do you fit into this These seven churches, you're part of one of them. Where are you? Paul talks a lot about self-examination, the idea of making sure that you're in the faith. Not that we can't know that we know that we know that we're in Christ, but where are we on a daily basis? Do you know how easy it is to pull the wool over your own eyes? You ever notice that? Oh, no, I'm good. I'm doing great with the Lord. And next thing you know, somebody comes out to the side and says, dude, what are you doing? Why are you why are you living your life like that? What are you doing? Well, what do you mean? Because it's easy to go with the flow, isn't it? Guess what? What I find is the flow's going the wrong way when it relates to this. The flow's going the wrong way. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. Listen, we need to examine our hearts continually and ask the Lord, where do I sit with you, Lord? Why? Because he's coming back. Because he's coming back. And I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you? You don't want to hear that? Yes, Lord, we want to hear that. So keep yourself in a constant state of examination. Ask yourself where you sit. Here we have the, the, the invitation to these churches to preview the things to come. John goes on here and he gives sort of this typical blessing that, uh, you know, Paul gives and it's often in the New Testament, the, the idea of the, the, the Greek, um, you know, kind of, Introduction or kind of you know saying hello to somebody, grace, and then in the Hebrew it's peace. They say that to each other just walking down the street, grace and peace. And so, what the apostles have done is they, comp- or the Holy through the Holy Spirit, brought those two together, and so they gr- say grace and peace to you. Of course, we talked about this through the Book of Philemon, that there is an incredible theological profoundness that's found in that little simple greeting. And it is this, that you can never know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. And it's so true. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I lack peace in my life. I don't understand why am I lacking peace in my life. And you're striving to get peace and you're striving harder and you're reading more and you're trying to be better and all of these kinds of things. And the Lord says, wait a second, that doesn't sound like grace to me. How do we get Peace. It's through grace, it's through grace. I can't work my, work my way to peace, not the kind of peace that God wants to give me. It's something that I receive from Jesus Christ, it's his grace upon me. Listen, if we get into this mentality, and we all do, to some extent, we all have a level of works-based mentality that if only I do a certain amount of things, I will experience a certain thing. That is not true. That is not true. There is a circle of blessing when it comes to being obedient to the Lord and things like that, but, but here's the reality. God owes us nothing. He owes us zero. But he's, he, he is so gracious to us, isn't he? He gives us so much. I would tell you this morning, if you lack peace in your life, check out where you're seeking for peace. Is it in your own works? Seek the Lord. Just say, Lord, I need your grace in my life. I need your peace. Will you fill me with your peace? Well, John goes on to to reveal to us the triune Godhead here, which is profound. And he tells us that's where this grace and peace flows from. He starts out by saying from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings of the earth. To him who loved us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and, his, and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is an incredible thing that John pins here. But when he begins to talk to us about the idea of grace and peace and where it flows from, the first person that he describes here is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, I have to be frank with you, this could be any one of the Trinity here, because they all are, were, and will continue to be, right? They're all pre existent, existed in present time, and will futuristically exist forever. But in particular, the way that this is written, it would seem that John is referring to God the Father here, to God the Father. And, and we find that. He's, he's revealed in that way in Revelation chapter 4 verse verse 8 where it describes him as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. This is the Father. This isn't Jesus. This is speaking about the Father sitting on the throne in heaven. Jesus sitting at the right hand. They're one, but they're separate people. Listen. I don't know how to make this any clearer. The Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Father. They're separate people. However, they are completely one. I hope that makes sense to you. (laughs) It's a difficult thing for us to get. And you know what's funny is that we don't struggle with the Spirit being God, being the Father, being part of the Father and part of the Son. We don't struggle with that. But it's hard for us to grasp how can a person be the same person but not the same person. How does that work? It doesn't, we don't get it. Listen, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be blown away when I look at angels that have four faces in heaven, let alone, like, like I don't get that. <laughs> right, I'm not struggling with that, but, but at the end of the day, they have four faces. Uh, we're talking about, you know, is it symbolism when Ezekiel's talking about, you know, these angelic beings that have eyeballs all over themselves and wings and stuff, dude, I think that's literal. God has made some pretty bizarre looking insects. Have you ever seen them? dude there's an insect that looks like a stick I don't know know what the thing's called but I was at my property one day and I'm like oh I'm going to pick that that's not a stick that was a bug dude the thing starts crawling around God's made some pretty bizarre things I think maybe that's literal my point is that that it's a hard concept for us to get but that doesn't make it any less true because it's difficult for us to understand here's what we know Notice the tense here, the father, he is, he is, he is present tense, he doesn't start out with he was, he starts out with present tense, he is, he is presently in control, watching over everything that's going on in the world today, in your personal life, and also in the, in, in our, in our, you know, in our world today, he is, he is God, and he is in control, and he is at work, and he was and he always ha- will be the point of it is speaking about god being totally sovereign in every era and every situation it doesn't matter how history looks to us what we know that that there's a god in heaven that's in control of everything and he always has been and he always will be i love the way that the uh, life application commentary explains this they, they say all of the time is encompassed in the father He is, was, and will be. This title is used only in Revelation. God is eternally present and therefore able to help his people in any age, in any situation. Note that the present tense is first, stressing that God of the Old Testament and the God of the future is still in control of the present. Even though it doesn't seem like it. The pressures and stresses that the early, early Christians faced made the truth of God's control over all history that much more meaningful. And maybe you're struggling today, wondering like, Lord, what, what are you doing? Why are these things happening? Oh, he knows what he's doing. And nothing's happening outside of his control, folks. People can create things that try and take out certain subsets of the population, but God's in control, and he knows what he's doing. So what do we do? We trust the Lord. We look to the Lord. We keep our eyes on the Lord because he is, and he was, and he is to come. He goes on here, and he says, not only does grace and peace flow from the Father, But notice, also flows from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Again, here's the number seven. The number of completeness. The number of fullness. Now John is not writing about seven different spirits here. He's writing about one spirit who manifests himself in seven different ways. And in particular... As Isaiah pinned it in Isaiah eleven two, 2 he's speaking about the manifestation of the Spirit of God upon Jesus himself. This is a messianic promise. Listen to what it says. He said, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who's him? Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So this is a messianic prophecy regarding Jesus that he would have that sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit in his life. First, the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. And we see that happen, don't we? Right at his baptism, we see the Father open up the heavens and say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon him. The Spirit of the Lord coming from heaven descends upon jesus this starts his earthly ministry by the way so the spirit of the lord prophetically isaiah pinned it hundreds of years before jesus came to this earth the spirit of the lord settled upon him and then what happened and then jesus was given this these other six manifestations of the spirit he was given uh the the uh The the spirit he was given the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might he was given the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord even in the temptation of Christ when he was in the wilderness it said Jesus was had a a reverence for the Father you know when he constantly every time he was tempted by the devil he said yeah but you you should you, you know the you know you help me out here I'm struggling. He said, when he, when he came to the bread, you know, he said, hey, listen, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He has a fear of God here. Jesus had a, this sevenfold uh, manifestation of the spirit of God. I see I just want to keep you guys awake here. I'm trying to keep myself awake too, so uh, don't mind me. But, and so here we, we, we believe that this is the spirit of God being spoken of, the sevenfold manifestation of the spirit of God. It's interesting that he saves Jesus for last. Isn't that interesting? He talks about the Father, then he talks about the Spirit, but grace and peace also flow from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This is none other than God the Son here. John describing Jesus here by who he is and, and what he has done. First, he tells us, You know, that he who he is, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the faithful witness, he is and always will be faithful. A faithful witness of what the truth, Jesus came to reveal. He's the word of God made fl- he's 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 the word of God made flesh. When we want to see what the word of God looks like in a person's life, we look to Jesus because he's the faithful witness, the witness of the truth. What does the Father expect? Just look at Jesus, just read about Jesus. He shows us exactly what that looks like. He was also the firstborn from the dead. The the, the word here in, for, for firstborn in the Greek is prototokos, and it's speaking of priority p- position, not necessarily that Jesus was the very first person that ever rose from the dead, because he wasn't. We read about it in uh, the Old Testament. Elijah raised a child from the dead. People were raised from the dead before Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not speaking about that. It's speaking about a position just like in colossians chapter 1:15 where it talks about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation that doesn't mean Jesus was created it's a prominent position it's speaking of a position it's a positional word speaking like he's the firstborn son that has all of the rights that come from the father's inheritance are flown down onto the son the double inheritance goes to the firstborn Jesus is the firstborn in that respect in preeminence priority and position. Not only that, but he is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. This means that Jesus is sovereign over all world affairs, folks. Over all kings of the earth. Even the prince of the power of the air is subject to Jesus Christ. He has he is not the same as Jesus, he's not equal with Jesus. He's not you know, the the brother of Jesus. He is a creation of Jesus. Jesus is creator. And he is over all kings of the earth, including the demonic realm. We don't run to anyone else but Jesus Christ, folks, when we need help. He He is over all things. John moves on here and he tells us what Jesus has done. Check this out. It says he's loved us and he's freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Jesus Christ loved us, and that's why he has done everything else that's listed in this list here. Listen, I was sitting back in worship today, and I was thinking about Jesus loving us. And you know, we hear that all the time, and I'm like, man, that is, it's, it's an incredible thing to think about Jesus loving us. And do you know what, I saw something incredible today during worship, and I saw Nate back there with little Woodsy, and he was holding him up in and, and worship, and he, he, here's the dad, Nate's the dad, Woodsy's the, the little baby, and he's holding him up, and, and they're face to face, and he's, Nate's kissing him, just telling him, I love you, I love you, I love you, and he's just pressing into his dad. Does he know how much his dad loves him? No. He has no idea. But seeing that picture is such an incredible picture of Jesus and you because I had this idea that that's what Jesus was doing to you guys and to me during worship, that he's pressing his head against my forehead, kissing me, telling me how much he loves me. That is the picture, folks. We will never understand how greatly we are loved, but we can see little pictures like that that are just precious to us, and we think like, oh, man, and God loves me infinitely more than that. What a great picture. He loves you. He loves you so much. And he doesn't love you because of who you are right this moment or what, you know, that you've tried to clean yourself up. He loved you before you ever tried to do anything. He loved you at your worst. It's loved past tense. He made a decision from the foundation of the world to love you. And that is an incredible thing, folks. And because he loves us, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the gospel, folks. The gospel is fueled by the love of God, by the love of the Son, who would go to the cross and bleed and die for our sins. He took the wrath that belonged to you and I for all sins that we've ever done, that we maybe presently are caught up into or will ever do. Jesus paid the price on the cross. His blood is enough, folks. His blood is enough And yet, for some reason, we can hear that and we can still struggle with, yeah, but I don't know about me. I don't know if Jesus really can forgive me. I don't know if his blood is sufficient to cleanse me. And I want to tell you, that is not the Lord. That's the enemy trying to sway you. John Corson does an incredible job with an illustration about the blood of Christ, that it cleanses us from every sin No matter what we've done, the blood of Christ is sufficient. It goes like this. Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was the propitiation, the satisfaction, if you will, of our sins. And not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. The blood of Jesus flowed from seven places. The first place he bled from, the the blood poured from his head that day. The blood from the thorns on his skull Uh, cleanses your thoughts the blood that was on his face he has covered the things that you may not want to face up to because of what you've seen or heard the blood flowed for you you might be saying this morning yeah but you don't know what i've done i've backed away from the lord i've turned my back on him well they took a flagellum and they beat his back they reduced it to hamburger meat that day his back was beaten so brutally If you've turned away from him and you've backed away from him, know this. Know that the blood, the blood that poured from his back cleanses you and sprinkles you. Yeah, but you you just don't know what I've done with these hands. Those hands were pierced. Those hands were pinned to the tree. Spikes driven through those hands to cleanse you and cleanse me from the things that we've handled that we ought not handle. The things that we've done that we ought not done. Blood flowed from his hands. You might be saying, well, it's it's something inside of me. I have have bitterness towards them and I'm angry with her. Jesus wants you to know this morning that they took that spear and they thrust it up into his side when he hung on the cross that day and blood flowed from his side. Feet. I've gone where I ought not to have gone. I've done things that I I should not have done. Jesus wants you to know that blood flowed from his feet too, to cleanse you from the places you've gone that you ought not to have gone. And I look and I realize the sevenfold flowing of the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from every sin, from all, in every area, and I'm free and I'm forgiven by the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Seven times, seven times, perfection seven places that's what he went through for me and for you what an incredible picture of what Jesus has done for you there is not a sin in the world that he has not cleansed you of that he is not capable of cleansing you of if you will come to him and you'll ask him for cleansing he will cleanse you don't hold back you come to Christ he can cleanse you of anything there's not a single person in the world that he did not die for know that it's an amazing thing what jesus has done for us his blood cleansed us it doesn't just stop at forgiveness though then he goes on and he gave us something incredible it says here that jesus also made us a kingdom priest to his god and father if you're a christian you are as peter put it in first peter chapter two verses nine and ten you're a chosen race you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the, with the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are, a pe- are, people, are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus has given you an incredible inheritance, folks. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, John writes, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Not only do we get to inhabit heaven, folks, but we also get to reign with Christ on earth. We're coming back with him. We're going to be ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom with Christ. That's what this is talking about in Revelation chapter 10. We are priests in the the kingdom that Christ has died to give us. We are a royal priesthood, folks, and you're going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus. No wonder John goes on to say, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. These are John's words just saying, whoa, that is incredible. Look what Jesus has done for me. Wow. What a glorious picture we have of the triune Godhead here. This brings us to our final point where we find the prophetic promise given in verse 7. It says behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him those even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen you know when my oldest son who lives in Kansas in the military he calls us up and he says i'm coming home i'm coming down to see you guys my wife and i get so excited we can't wait to see him you know the idea that he that he's coming and you know we miss him so much and we can't wait to see him from the moment that he calls we're anticipating his coming we're anticipating his coming he may tell he may not even give us a date on hey i i, I don't you know he might call us up and say hey i'm going to be coming down at some point here in the next few months we don't know exactly when he's coming but we know he's coming and it excites us because we long to be with him we love our son We want to be in his presence. We want to see him. We want to hug him. We want to to just uh, hang out with him. And guess what? That's enough for us. We don't try and figure out when he's coming exactly and try and pinpoint all of these things. He said he's coming. We trust in his word. He said he's coming. Okay, he's coming. We believe that he will come. This is sort of the idea what John is saying here. He tells us behold here. The, the word literally means pay attention. Be looking out for this. What are we supposed to be looking out for? The coming of Christ. When did John write this? In A.D. 90-ish, 94, 95, 96-ish, 2,000 years ago? He said, behold. And we're, are we wondering if he's coming? Listen, folks, we're still supposed to behold We're still supposed to pay attention. We're still supposed to be looking because he could come at any moment. That's the point. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We need to continually behold his coming, folks. It's something that is supposed to continually be in our minds to keep us excited about the Lord, to help us not to grow weary, to help us to not go to sleep. That's why he gave us the prophetic promise. He gave us a prophetic promise to fuel us, to keep us going. Could you imagine if we did not have the prophetic promises of Jesus coming again? How would you be living your life? Really, what would, to be honest, what would you be doing? Probably nothing. You would eventually, I'm guessing, go, what am I doing? Why am I living my life this way? Why am I pursuing these kinds of things? What am I doing? But God created us. He knows us. He knows what motivates us. And he knows what we need to keep us motivated. So what does he do? He gives us the prophetic promise of his coming again. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come to get you that where I am, you will be also. So that's the promise we're waiting on, right? If there was no promise like that, you and I probably wouldn't be here today. I probably would have went fishing this morning. I've been like, hey, man, that's the reality. Don't misunderstand the prophetic promise here, folks. It's a warning to the world, but it's a promise to you and I. And it's meant to, pro- to propel us, to keep us focused on the thing that we're called to, to keep us grounded and keep us looking for the coming Christ. He says he is Coming, this is perhaps the greatest prophetic promise penned in the scriptures. Not the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. Because the second coming of Christ, that's when it's over, folks. It's all over. Jesus comes back, reigns for a 1,000 years on earth. There's the final judgment. He, he gets rid of this world. The heavens and the earth are destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire along with the enemy and everybody that rejected Christ, Right? And then he creates a new heavens and the new earth, new Jerusalem comes down. We live with him forever and ever. Amen. That's that's the reality. It's the reality. Until Jesus comes back, there's still hope for people. And there's still hope for you and I to go out and share with anybody and everybody that we can. You know, the idea of the banquet, you know, the king's banquet, the marriage supper, you know, and, and the idea of the king inviting all these people, which is a picture of Israel. Goes out, he says, hey, the Messiah's is coming. Guess what? They, when, he, when he shows up, they don't want to come to the wedding. So they don't want to come to the marriage uh, ceremony, su- supper or whatever. And then what happens? The king says, go out into the byways and the highways and go get anybody and any- anybody that you can. And we'll fill this place with those people. That's you and I speaking about the Gentile nations, folks. And he came after you. But he sent you back out into the highways and the byways to give people that garment, that robe of righteousness so that they can also enter into the marriage supper that we're going to have with Jesus one day. He's coming. The Bible says he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This is a sneak preview of his coming. He's coming with the clouds. Daniel saw the second coming of Christ. In Daniel chapter 7, he said uh, in verse thirteen, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there w- there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus will come and conquer the Antichrist. Daniel is giving us a picture of the beast in Daniel chapter 7. He's talking about Jesus coming to conquer the, the, the rulers, the dominions of the, those, those principalities and powers that are ruling this world. And he's coming to do that, and he will come on the clouds to do that, and, and nobody will miss it. He won't come in secret. Just like, listen to me, You will not accidentally take the mark of the beast, folks. You will not accidentally take that. You will purposely take that knowing what you're doing. Jesus is not going to just come on the clouds and only some people see it. Everybody will see it. And it's interesting that he says even those whom he pierced. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel. Remember, there's the Old Testament scripture that says, friend, where did you get those wounds? And he said, in the house of my friends. He's speaking about the Jews. They, they, they slay the Messiah. wasn't the Romans. It was the Jews. But guess what? It was God's prophetic promise to you and I so that we could be reconciled to the Father. And it says here, those who pierced him, will, will they'll see him coming. Not only them, but also, um, you know, it goes on to say, all the tribes of the earth will wail on his account. Everyone will see him. Matthew twenty four thirty. Jesus said this. He said, "Then uh, will appear in the in the heaven a sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, and power, uh, with power and great glory. Even all the Gentiles of the nations will see Jesus coming, and they will." mourn before him because they'll realize everything that was said about Jesus in the Bible is true. Everything that is said is true. And the Jews will know that too. There will be plenty of people that come to Christ during the tribulation period, folks. And, you know, is it them wailing? Is it the believers wailing? Is it the unbelievers wailing? I think it, I, I, I could just say that I think it's probably going to be everybody. When you see Jesus coming on the clouds in his glory I don't know if there will be a person standing. I think everybody will be face down because of his glory. It's going to be a marvelous sight, folks. Incredible sight. John interjects his own thoughts again, even so, amen. As if to say, so let it be. John then records the words that we find in verse 8 here. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty Many believe that these are the words of God the Son here. This is Jesus speaking. Um, Yet some claim that these are the words of God the Father. It's, It's not a stretch to think that it's Jesus speaking here because he is the Alpha and the Omega. And in fact, the book of Revelation at the end of the, and in chapter 22, it presents Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We know this is Jesus. And it says here, he is, he is coming back. He's coming soon. He identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. Now, some people believe that it's perhaps the Father here because of what it says in verse 4, where it says he is, uh, you know, identifies the Father as the one who is and who was and who is to come. And the Father most certainly is the Almighty, but so is Jesus. So Jesus, I believe this is a reference to Jesus here. He, is, he was not a created being. He is the eternal God. He is the almighty. He all, he's always existed. He always will exist. And he is the one who holds the world in his hands. He is the creator. He is the savior and the Lord over all. So no matter who you believe of what's being, or who, who's speaking here, the truth doesn't change about what's being said. Jesus is coming. And we've been given a sneak preview of that. So the question is, what will we do with that? What will we do with what we've been given? Am I ready to see Jesus? Every person has to ask themselves that question. Am I ready? Am I ready? If you're not ready, guess what? You have time right now to get ready. Because Jesus is one prayer away, folks. It's one prayer away from stepping back into right relationship with Jesus or stepping into relationship with him for the very first time. Are you ready? You know, it's not a matter of if Jesus is coming, it's when. And so the question is, are you ready this morning? Listen, if you're not, you have an opportunity to do that today. If you're if you not living the way that you should be living, guess what? You need to get right with the Lord this morning. You need to get right with the Lord You need to repent of of the sins that are in your life and ask the Lord to cleanse you. Didn't we just read that he cleanses us from every sin? The word tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right, we gotta get right with God. The church needs to be in a place of walking in holiness because he's holy, therefore we're to be holy. And if we're not walking in holiness, listen, today, the, the right step is to ask the Lord to forgive you for your sins and then begin to do what he says. It's not your life to live. He bled and died for you. He purchased you with his blood. It's for you to get right with the Lord this morning if, that, if, you, if you're not right with him. You know, and then if you've never come to Christ and you're not sure if you die that you're, that you're going to go to heaven you need to make that a surety this morning. You just come to Christ, man. He, he's willingly drawing you in this morning. He's giving you an invitation to come. But, but as I said earlier, you know, um, I can't come unless I've been given the invitation. Well, he's giving you the invitation right now. But guess what? I have to actively then participate in that invitation and go to whatever it is I'm being invited to. And that is into right relationship with Christ, into the right relationship with the Father this morning. If that's you, you come forward. You ask somebody to pray with you. I, you know, there, there's something about Jesus calling people publicly to come forward and for, for them to say, listen, I want to I wanna declare my, my faith in Christ. Christ died for you publicly, and he's calling you publicly. You come. You just pray with somebody here. You know what I'm afraid of is that there's so much fear of what people will think about what we do that we don't do anything. And I promise you, when you stand before the Lord... You're not going to go, yeah, I was kind of worried about what this guy was going to think about me when I was given that invitation. Can I do it now? He's going to say no. You do it now. You do it today. Don't leave here the same person, folks. There's too much at stake. God has done an incredible work in your life, and he wants to use you in this world. So let him. Get right with him. Come to know him if you don't know him. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And what an incredible four verses that we find here in Revelation chapter 1. Lord, we know you're coming. We know time is short. And we pray that you would help us to be found doing the Father's business, Lord. Just as you were Jesus when you were in Jerusalem at 12 years old. Parents found you doing you were about your Father's business. May we be as well. This morning I pray, God, that you would help us not to not to escape this moment, Father, but to take in this moment and to respond to what you've said to us here today. Lord, there's not a single perfect person in this place. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but because of your grace, because of your goodness, because of your forgiveness, the blood of Christ on the cross, we can be washed and cleaned So we ask you, Lord, for just a response of repentance this morning, Lord, for us to prepare our hearts for your coming. We know it's soon. So, Lord, we leave these moments to you and to your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.